we come this evening uh, to the end of book three in the Psalms. Uh, that is a, a section of the Psalms that has 17 uh, different Psalms in it. And overarching uh, that entire section is, for the most part, this theme of, of the king's crisis over God's promises. The king's crisis, it doesn't seem as blessed as what God had promised. God seems to have failed Israel's king and Israel. This section begins with the very famous Psalm 73, um, where there is a struggle in the believer's heart because those in the world have more of the goods, world's goods than he does. So there is envy. There is that personal struggle with God's promises. Uh, we looked at Psalm 88 a couple of weeks ago, and that was an individual's uh, faith crisis. There was no relief, not ever. There was no relief uh, in the struggles and difficulties of life. And yes, that happens. And today it is uh, Psalm 89. And uh, that, is, that, that is the king has failed his nation. A corporate type of, 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 um, of lament following, uh, following some praise. Um, and and it's, of course it's not easy to look at our own lives. Uh, our lives may not, not be going as well as we would want. Um, how do we square our own suffering with the steadfast love of God? We may be deeply disappointed, and life does not seem fair. An author that a number of us are reading these days, um, uh, Dane Ortland, uh, says that we have, due to this, our sin nature, an innate suspicion of truly the goodness and the compassion of God. Um, we, however, in this section, want to see that God is better than we imagine. His compassion and steadfast love is better than we imagine. There are a couple of words that show up multiple times in this song. One is steadfast love or chesed. We know that well. The other is faithfulness. Seven different times throughout these verses, those two words appear. And they appear in each one of the major sections. The writer is seeking to draw our hearts in through our suffering still to see uh, God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, I want this is a long psalm, and I'm not going to preach every verse. I instead am going to summarize each of the main sections, and then uh, and then read that section so that you can see where I got it, have it have it come out of the text for your for you, and then at the end make four points of application or spinning this out in our own lives. Uh, this psalm opens with buoyant um, optimism. There is joyful praise because of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And there is a very clear and bold, big promise. A big promise that makes our hearts pump with joy. Um, God makes a firm and binding covenant with his son David. And it is a forever covenant. His throne would be secure forever. And so God's people are under his watchful eye. Um, it is a great thing to be a child of God under our watchful covenant God. King and kingdom will never end. And so we love to sing of the steadfast love of God. 
this morning, even from where I was up front, to hear you sing, even through those masks, it was like the roof was going to lift. It was, we love to sing of the steadfast love of God. Look at these four verses. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I, make, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. That is God's big promise. His big promise. A forever kingdom on, with a, 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 a king, either David or a descendant on the throne. The big promise. And this big promise we see secondly in verses 5 to 18 comes from a great and big God. There are two things that are very clear in this section. One is God's creative power. He is all-powerful and all things declare his glory and he likes us to notice it. We've got this orange hibiscus on our porch that it just pops, it's just gorgeous. And it is the only reason is for us to give glory to God. God likes us to notice in his creation things that give him glory. He is all-powerful. Nothing is beyond his control. He harnesses, we'll see, he harnesses the sea to unharness Egyptians, the Egyptian army. He is absolute, he is all-powerful. Secondly, he is absolutely righteous. And in his steadfast love, he is faithful. And the promise here will be that all of everything will work out for the good of God's people. Eventually, he will make all things right, even if that is not until the return of the Ancient of Days, as we considered uh, this morning. He is not just great. We're, we get that. He is also, however, deeply good. And so we worship, verse 15 says, in the light of his face. Imagine that. His countenance, his facial expression for his people is one that engenders peace and joy in us. We see, we see, and therefore worship him and express God's beauty and joy to him. Let me read verses 5 through 18. See his creative power. See his absolute um, righteousness. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. He who is in the skies can be compared. Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of his holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arms. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your right hand. High 
your right hand. God is all-powerful. But look now at his goodness. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, uh, to the Holy One of Israel. God gives us a big promise. And that comes from a great and a good God. And we see um, in uh, the next section then, um, God's invincible Messiah King. His invincible Messiah King. This is a little bit more complicated section. And I want you to notice that there are two pairs that are sort of operating at the same time. The first one that if God is faithful, and yet in his faithfulness, he brings judgment to those who are unfaithful. God is faithful, uh, but he also punishes faithless kings. Um, His loving, his steadfast love is centered on David. It is centered on the descendants of the king, but then it is also centered on the Lord Jesus, the Messiah King. Um, who is righteous but counted as guilty. Look for God's faithfulness and then his faithful judgment. Look for God's steadfast love displayed to King David and then secondly uh, on the Messiah. And notice how they they interweave. You will see them. First of all, there is a lifting up. David, the man after God's own heart, is chosen for his good heart and he becomes... God's firstborn, and the Hebrew behind that is Elion. Elion, most high, sometimes ascribed to God. David is God's firstborn. Jesus is later uh, described as God's only begotten. El Elion, God most high. God most high. So there is an elevation of God's, of God's servants here. And then there is a bringing low. There's a warning if descendants of David reject God. But it's exactly what God promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. They same language. Disobey God, kings, and you will be punished with the rod, with their iniquity. In their iniquity, you'll be punished with these strokes. And yet God will go on to say in this section... I, listen to this. I will not lie to David. I'll not lie to him. It will look like I have, but I will not lie to David. His offspring will endure forever. And there is simply no way that the lavish promises in this section are confined uh, to, uh, to simply to, to um, David the king. 19 through 37. Of God you spoke in a vision to your godly one, and of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, 
The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my father. See the overlap here. You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. And now the flip side. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove him from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the sun, uh, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness uh, in the skies. Much praise for God, for his faithfulness. And then in this next section, I've just titled it in the, in the sermon outline, But when the wheels come off, it is a jarring pivot uh, in this psalm. It goes from praise to now lament and weeping because God did reject them. Israel was plundered, conquered, taken into exile. And now they cry out, you have cast us off and rejected us. There is deep bewilderment at God's apparent absence. They are confused, but should not have been. 2 Samuel 7, coming home to roost. God's punishment of the king's rebellion explains the wheels coming off. They got what was coming. They shouldn't have had to ask, why has God rejected us? It was obvious. It is impossible to shoehorn God's lavish promises into such a catastrophe. Have you ever felt that? Impossible to shoehorn God's lavish promises into your catastrophes. And yet, of course, Jesus was rejected by God so that you would not be now or ever. You are in the covenant, so you are, and listen to this word carefully, you are in the covenant, and therefore you are God's darling child. God's darling child. We read that in Jeremiah 31, where Ephraim, will I forget you forever, Ephraim? No, you are my darling child. God's language, extravagant, almost unnerving. 
And yet it answers, it answers the agonizing question of verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Which, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Where is it? If you are God's darling child, you may put that question to rest. Christ suffered so that we would never have to ask that question, why has God rejected us? It is an undoubted reality whether or not you feel it. And yes, we may suffer at God, the hands of God's enemies just as Jesus did. Let, let me read 38 then to 51. This is the lament. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. You have made him not stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and, and cast the, his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Oh, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget us forever? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is for what vanity you have created of all the children of men. What can man, what can um, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many of many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Four things I want you to see as we try to pull these pieces together then. Um, the Psalms forever and ever teach us to voice our disappointments to God. You see, we also feel, as 46a says, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself? How long, O Lord, will you forget us? Forever? Pray, voice your disappointments to God. If you do not, what likely will happen is you will make, remain confused in murky darkness. Time and time again, God gives you words to express what's going on in your heart. Take him up on it. Speak them to me, he says, and I will answer. Speak those words, dig into the text, and I will Answer. The first thing then is to pray your disappointments to God. The second thing is to remember what you can't see. Remember the things that you can't see. When you think, when we think we know better than God, we are crushed with anxiety. When we think we've got life figured out apart from God and what He is up to, we are crushed with anxiety. Elisha. Elisha with his servant outside of Dothan, surrounded by the Syrian armor, army, 
His servant says, what was his question? What was his question? What will we do? Uh, have you ever said that? You have been way over your head in, in turmoil, and there's no way that this ends well. And anxiety peaks in sheer panic and desperation. What are we going to do? We love Elisha's response. He gives reason for courage. Reason for courage. Do not be afraid. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. That's reason for courage. And then, and then Elisha makes one prayer. Not for God to show up. That's not what he prays for. He said he prays that God would open the servant's eyes to see the spiritual reality that's out there. It strikes me too that Israel simply could not have dreamt that the destruction of their temple was good news. How could they have ever thought that? And yet you remember in our series in Romans, their rejection, their, um, their punishment meant the world's salvation. Uh, their jealousy, and then their jealousy for the nations would woo them back to God. What a strategy. Who could have figured that out? God's the great chess master, always four moves ahead. Trust him. That's what he's working out. These kinds of, these kinds of miracles. God's kingdom moves forward when it feels like it's moving backward. He's moving forward even when it looks like it's going backward. I want you to think about, it. is there ever a time that you have felt crushed by um, an event in your life that ends up changing the whole trajectory of your life for good? Have you ever encountered that? It, it was going to destroy you. You were undone. But it changed the direction of your life in such a way that you can look back and see blessings from God. The second thing, then, is, is remember what you can't see. I love what verse 22 says. Uh, the enemy will not, will not outwit God's servant. The enemy will not outwit Christ. Following Christ in suffering. Be encouraged in this, my dear friends. Following Christ in suffering is how you come to resemble him. Following Christ in suffering is how you come to resemble him. The third thing then uh, that I want you to see is that God gives you more than you can ask for and never less. God gives you more than you can ask for and never less. Losses strip away things that you don't need and leave you with more than you could imagine. Losses strip away what you don't truly, deeply need, and they leave you with more than you can imagine. Joseph, Joseph, unjustly accused, years in prison, was able to look back on that and say God meant it for good. Uh, Job, after months of judging God, at the end says, and now I finally see God. I heard about him, but I finally now see him. 
Alan Strange, not that I put him in the category of those guys, but Alan Strange in his bout with COVID would say, I guarantee it, he would say it was worth it. In fact, no matter what the outcome, it would have been worth it. Because this is what he said, Jesus was never sweeter nor nearer. There is nothing that is, that is better than that. You could almost say, bring on the COVID. Bring on suffering. Because I want to know Jesus sweeter and nearer. You see, if you cling to your personal comfort, which is the world's agenda, you will miss God's agenda. And it is to suffer for Jesus, and you will be like him. So I want you to think, what is he stripping away to give you something better? What is he stripping away to give you something better? Look for it in faith. Now, how do I know that? How can we say with confidence that God is stripping away things to give you something better? How do we know that? The fourth point is this. God's compassion is always greater than you think. His compassion is always greater than you think. This is another thought from my friend Ortland. Alan's friend Ortland. Actually, I don't know him. But this guy Ortland says that we need the word and the spirit to deconstruct our natural view of God. And our, even as Christians, our natural view of God is that he is not truly as compassionate as we need him to be or desire him to be. There is that innate suspicion that God must with all of our sins and sillinesses, hold back some compassion for us. I want you to... And yet God is not, as I've said, He's not only great, He is also good, deep down and to the core. And we see His heart in the heart of Jesus, who yearned, in fact, His, his, his guts churned for people who, were, who, were, who needed His mercy and compassion. There was there was a, a, a emotional movement in his in his gut for the hurting. That reflects the heart of God the Father as well. well. I want you to imagine. Some of you you don't have to imagine, but you do have tender compassion for a child for one of your children. You have tender compassion, especially when you see them suffer especially when you see them in an illness. Uh, you want to carry their trouble. You want to soften the blow. You want to lift the burden. Even when their suffering is due to their own foolishness, you want to lift that burden from them and carry it for them. Parents do that. My darling, you, you have thought these words if you have not said them. My darling child, my heart suffers with yours. And compassion like a weight feels in our chest when we see our children hurting. Question for you tonight, dear friends. Does your view of God, does your doctrine of God include you being his darling child? 
I didn't just say whether your doctrine of God includes being loved by God. We've heard that so often we it rolls off our, 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 our tongues. But does being God's darling child fit your working theology? Yeah, he loves me. He loves everyone in Christ. Everyone who is in Christ, he loves. But is he fond of you? Does he like you? Who you are? Even with all of your persistent foolishness, and even with your entrenched sin, does he like you? Are you his darling child? Now, when God asks us a question, it is often, uh, the, the answer is often something like this. Well, of course, don't be so obtuse. And so he asks us in Jeremiah 31, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? If I may say gently, don't be so obtuse. Of course you are. Of course you are. So how can you wonder if he hears your prayers when you're suffering? You are his darling child. And God is more more tender with you as his darling child than you even could be yourself. You can never overestimate his compassion. You can only underestimate Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we, we desperately need to know your heart better. Because as we go through suffering, be it sickness, be it uh, problems in families, be it the chaos we see in our world and various spheres, um, it is possible for us to lose sight of the fact that we are your darling children and we are therefore given anxieties and fears. Um, Teach us. Teach us of your great compassion. Let us daily marinate in this reality of, of the compassion of God for weak people and the mercy of Jesus for sinners. And may we therefore have a story to tell, a story of redemption not only to experience, but to tell it to those in our families and those outside. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.